Hey, welcome to the 93rd episode of the OpFat Cast. I am Steve Cuff, and joining me, I've got Sean Glennis. Hey, Steve. Sean, are you excited because we finally get to discuss one of your favorite actresses of all time today? I had no idea that we were going to be talking about Anne Dowd. I am unprepared. Oh my god! This is this is typical of you. You never prepared for. I, I'm honestly, I'm I, disgusted. I know. I should have rewatched Hereditary. I mean, well, thankfully I watched it a few nights ago, but I would have rewatched it like today or yesterday. Sure, um, sure. It's got to be fresh. That's one of the big rules of the podcast: is you have to watch everything 12 hours before. So you really fucked this one up, pal. Yeah. Not Usually impressed. I'm pretty safe with Hereditary. Watching it uh, almost weekly, but. Uh, you caught me in one of these strange windows. Yeah, I know. I know you're a, you're a big Aster head. That's that's usually how people know you. So that that makes sense to me. And uh, Jack Easton's here, <laughs> and you're a Dowd dude. Yeah, Dowd for life. I'm here. Jack, how you doing? I'm I'm doing fantastic, Steve. Just amazing. Pleasure to be here. Honored. Do the Irish celebrate Easter, or is this a an American holiday? Uh, I'm the cool Catholic thing. Somewhat, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a big one, big one. But we Jack, we, I, we we don't do chocolate crosses though. That's an American thing. That's like the line we don't go over. Bunnies, cool mm-hmm. crosses, not so much. Don't really want to be remembered that way. Do you think Jesus's chances would have been better if he would have practiced social distancing at the Last Supper? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it could have been if he he didn't get that guy in there kissing him. Romans never would have known. None yeah. the wiser could have snuck out the back. Mm-hmm. He could still be alive today, just hanging out, chilling. <laughs> well, I mean, he is right. That—that's what I was always taught. I mean, he's hanging out yeah. up there with the big man himself, his father, etc. But he is in all of us. That too. <laughs> Busy man. Got a lot on his plate. I—I I honestly think that. The Irish have have Catholicism figured out because uh, it just it lasts fifteen minutes and everybody just smokes in the back, right? That is a yeah. A, there is priest shopping and things like where you find the guy. You know, you go to the parish with the priest who just like goes through the quickest, doesn't do a sermon. A sermon's a waste of time. Who cares what a priest thinks? No one. Just whip through, get it done, job satisfied. Jesus happy in heaven. You can go home. That's all you need. That's all you need. That's all, that's uh, all Myros, Jesus you're said. You're joining us today. <laughs> that's, all, that's all he said. That's it. That was the big takeaway. <laughs> Marios, how you doing? Did you eat any ham today? What's what's your ham levels at? No, no, I, I did not eat any ham. And, and this is going to be very relevant. When we release this in like two weeks after Easter. But uh, exactly. Well, people are going to want to know. They're going to say they're going to say while while you guys were recording this, what was your Easter like? You never discussed your Easter. People are constantly bar- just a barrage of emails asking us about our holiday experiences. Why the fuck didn't you eat any ham? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, uh, we, we got some uh, good uh, ribeyes here. Look Steve, Steve, do you want to know my big, my big victory for, uh, for Easter was um, that I found yeast for sale in a grocery store. That's like my big win oh. for today hmm. was I found three envelopes on three shelves that would normally have yeast 
barren, empty, just a couple of empty cardboard boxes. And in at the back, didn't even look like a product, just three envelopes. And I managed to snatch them up. So, uh, and then he yeah. said to himself, yeast has risen. God is good. Yes. <laughs> then, well, it hasn't done it yet. That's, it's going to save up for like Easter Monday, I think. Is there an Easter Monday? Yeah, sure. Why so wait, not? Sure. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah that makes sense. Uh, so what you're saying is, I, I'm saying, okay, so Jack has chosen his path because there's two paths you can go down in quarantine. You either choose gardening or you choose artisanal bre- bread making. Now, you see, now, now this is a point of contention, okay, because I always bake my own bread because it's really, really easy if you have your own bread maker. I don't do sourdough or any of that fancy shit, just a regular, you know, but you can just put it together. It really takes almost no effort whatsoever. It's all these other people who've taken up baking that are fucking my life up. So, yeah, cut it out, guys. <laughs> Suddenly, I've never struggled to get yeast, and now suddenly the yeast section is fucking empty. <laughs> Cut it out, America. Why don't you check, your, your, don't you check your mom's vagina? Uh, Steve, yeah, sorry, Mario. We covering <laughs> Anne Dowd today. Why did I watch all these Margot Martindale movies? Yeah, and then we're gonna have a fun. We're gonna have a fun pun for the the title. It's gonna be called like Anne Dowd Abbey or something, and everyone's gonna love it. We're gonna yeah, get that's really fun. Lessons. Yeah, it's fun. Everybody likes when you say that. <laughs> Uh, also joining us today, I guess you could say that, uh, you know, the stone has rolled away and he has risen. Stephen Coleman is back with us for the first time in a long time. Coleman, my only question for you today is why is Irish soda bread the most disgusting shit in the fucking world? I have no idea. I only had it for the first time back in December. Oh. Well, I'm not offended by this and, at all. And I'm still, I'm still trying to get the moisture back. That's that's true. That's in my good. palate. Steve, have you have you ever eaten store bought American bread? Cause it's the worst. Yeah. No, it's it's also trash. But but you, you go to you go to Ireland, you get your full Irish, and then they're like, also here's this bread. It's just this this dense pile of of gross. It's. I think it's 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 just a vehicle because you're for your the butter because your butter is yes. way better. The oh, Irish the butter, butter is excellent. I mean, no, you you have to put the butter on it, but yeah, no, it's it's an elegant vehicle for exactly that purpose. Yeah, you gotta you gotta soften it up, but yeah, it's the good stuff, man. It's almost like you weren't you you need you need to be raised in more poverty. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, that's that's what's happening here. You've lost the poverty mindset. You got to get yourself back in the groove. Cake eater over here. Been here gentrifying the podcast. <laughs> That's what I do best. I'm moving into this podcast and building a motherfucking high rise. All right. Well, we've, you know, I, I was joking about some of the feedback that we've gotten from people. And um, a, a common theme that I've seen is, uh, well, my favorite remark is, why aren't you more like the rewatchables? And the answer is because I haven't hit rock bottom yet. But <laughs> the consistent feedback we get is you guys do a lot of movies, but it's usually stuff I've never heard of. Why don't you talk about someone that that we all know and love? So with that <laughs> feedback in mind, we have chosen. We jumped into the zeitgeist. Is, that's right. We jumped into the zeitgeist. <laughs> this is going to go poorly. <laughs> it's going to go really well because... Who who is the most popular actress in the world right now? And Florence there's, there's Pugh. A few names you could throw out. Florence Leslie Pugh. Leslie Ann Warren. No, Florence Pugh. I to that I say P U. No, no. <laughs> Take a seat, young lady. Step back because Whoopi Goldberg is truly an actress of our time. And this actually worked out well because I, again I I don't really know 
how this started. I think at one point, Susan just out of nowhere said, are you guys ever going to do any Whoopi Goldberg movies? And I thought that was a wonderfully weird question to ask me, uh, apropos of nothing. And that kind of turned into this sprawling project that we now have in front of us, which has been aptly named the Whoopathon. And so when you're doing a Whoopathon, what do, what do you choose? What do you go with? And some people would say, well, clearly you have to start with her, her best work, her, the, the work that made her who she is today, the, the, the star of The View, which all of us tune into every single morning now that we're all working from home. And that would, of course, be Ghost in the Color Purple. But we said no. Why, why, why would we ever watch these? Whoopi is a comedian. It's well known as a comedian. So we've decided to dive deep into the world of Whoopi, Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg. This is already going off the rails. Oh, wow. I'm going to mark that as an edit point. Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. That's, that's what Ted Danson called her the first time he saw her naked. Um, so Whoopi Goldberg. And another edit point we've got. I'm just going to, can we imagine all of these films with Whoopi in them? That would be, yeah, that would improve that, at least all of them. I mean, some <laughs> of them are, you could, you could say that there, there's Wookiee-esque moments. It's, I mean, come, like, what is, what is this? Come on. Uh, that sounds like a Wookiee noise to me. <laughs> How is it? That's, again, like, that, that's the, the uh. cry of the Wookiee from the planet was it Kesk or something? Is that where he's from? That's that sounds like the language of the Wookiee. So, uh, why don't we why don't we start at <laughs> 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 the place where these beautiful films have come from, or these beautiful sound sound bites have come from? Can we talk a little bit about Homer and Eddie, which is a unique movie because this this kind of came on the heels of a lot of star power for for Whoopi Goldberg. This is post Color Purple. She's she's in her prime. She, she could pretty much take any role she wants. And she says, I need to be in a movie with Jim Belushi where he plays a cognitively disabled man and I am a uh, mentally ill asshole. And this is what we get. <laughs> and it's a unique film, one, in its shittiness, two, in the fact that it is almost completely scrubbed from from cultural discourse and the internet <laughs> and everywhere else. And, you know, the only place you can really get this is it is available on DVD and it's, it's part of Probably a lost screen. film collection. <laughs> yeah. In full screen pan and scan. Who, who uh, went and but, found this? Why would they do that? I, I, I don't know. I, I would have said, let's keep it lost. Let's just not. But it, wow. it's actually, it, it is streaming somewhere now. It's streaming from the illustrious streaming service Tubi, which is like dollar store crackle, I guess. It's, is, is it uh, Tubi or Tubi? I can never tell. I like, I I like Tubi. Tubi TV. There's, it's, there's some real gems on Tubi, though. I agree. Tubi. Jack, I feel like you're taking a shot at Jim Belushi's weight right now, and I don't appreciate it at all. Oh. Look, I never dissed the Belushi's. <laughs> never. This not is, after, not after Twin is, Peaks. This podcast, <laughs> this podcast is about two things. It's about body positivity and Belushi positivity, and I'm not going to let you sit here and, and say this stuff, okay? No, Belushi, is, Belushi is amazing in this. Um, yeah, he go, he commits um, to something that is on the film. 
So yeah, that's <laughs> I think that's the summation. What? Yeah, I mean, do, who wants to even try and sum this film up? What is this? It's a well, road movie. Let's make Coleman do it. Oh, let's great. make Coleman yeah. do it. It's just like I don't know what what is this of mice and men for people who tried to hold their breath for eight minutes. I don't like what is this. I feel like this is just a. This was a potential vehicle for Jim Belushi, sorry, James Belushi, to get that, to get some more acting cred and to maybe even get that Oscar moment. There's so many scenes that are just like, this is his Oscar real moment. And his, I just imagine his agent convincing him, you got to take this role. This is going to really get you some, this is going to put you in contention for one of the best. And it's obviously wholesomely offensive in every regard <laughs> also he goes uh, up against so. dustin hoffman uh who was doing pretty much the same thing and yeah you know you go up against the hoff you know you better be prepared definitely and, definitely and, yeah there you go Qantas. no Qantas in here crash some cars I mean, I, if i pitch this to you guys as as flowers for algernon but you get to act alongside Whoopi goldberg uh, that's not a bad elevator pitch right Come on. Where's the part where he gets smart? I, I missed that part. <laughs> <laughs> I like that um, uh, Janice, uh, Janet Maslin, a uh, longtime uh, film critic for The Times, uh, started her review, uh, contemporaneous review, with the sentence, Whoopi Goldberg remains one of the great unclassifiable beings on the current movie scene. <laughs> that, that is vicious. God damn Wow. <laughs> this film is unclassifiable. I mean, we talk, we've got James Belushi playing Learning Disabled, Whoopi Goldberg playing a sociopath, murderous, literally murderous sociopath that we're supposed to feel badly about. And then on top, it's directed by Andrei Konchalovsky, who, you know, worked with Tarkovsky in Russia and came over and directed the Kurosawa script. And Tango went, and Cash. You know, and, well, Tango and Cash the same year, uh, which is a much more fun film. Um, like there's there's just this quality to this film because Konchalovsky is as ridiculous tango and cash is Konchalovsky comes from like serious film stock I don't think he ever really got to realize it fully in America but um, this film is I, ju I just don't know who this film is for um, it's very mixed up very muddled randomly lapses into maybe being religious towards the end Um there's kind of like a, a faith moment, but, you know, kind of like a, an Americana faith. I don't know. It's a, just a really weird film. And it just does. It, it's got John Waters in a cameo in the first five minutes. John Waters yeah. uh, robs, <laughs> robs James Belushi. It's like, wait, Roger, like yeah. John Waters is in this? What the heck? And then he disappears. He's never seen again. This whole film is just yeah. absolutely bizarre. Um, I just never know exactly where I'm with it, but I'm also at no point am I engaged with it. Like I am staring at just like a slowly crashing train throughout the whole thing. Uh, there's no, there's dissolves in places. There shouldn't be dissolves. I am just perplexed by this uh, film. Oh, the I, editing I, fucked I, me up. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I, I don't know, why is it? Because I'm sure everyone knows how to make a film. Like, this is not a, a, a beginner film, first timer for anyone. So I can only assume things went wrong. Well, and we should say, too, that when I say the editing fucked me up, it's not because, like, large pieces of the film were edited out or certain cuts don't make sense. It's they do these these dissolve crossfade things where... 
it's like it, it normally would indicate the passage of time, but no time seems to pass. It's just like it, it'll just dissolve in the middle of a scene and then it comes back and it's they're still in the car having the same conversation they were before. It's it's completely insane. It's maddening. I thought there was something wrong I, uh, with the version I was watching. This comes around I, the same I, time uh, they remade I, I Breathless. Think, um, there's a couple lines in... Uh, I'm reading Hal Hinson's review for the Washington Post, and there's a couple lines I want to read uh, that I think the, the opening speaks to uh, our week, which is, uh, in life we get to choose whom we spend time with. In the movies, though, the company of undesirables is sometimes forced upon us. Uh, and, and, but there's a real stinger uh, here towards the bottom where he says, uh, both actors here get to do a great deal of what they are the least talented at, acting. <laughs> wow. it, it is worth... Save your nasty comments because I don't care. <laughs> it, it is... I don't like snap judgments because I've had snap judgments made on me. <laughs> Oh, sorry, what? <laughs> it is a remarkable. I mean, it's something I've learned from this is that Whoopi Goldberg was in a number of comedies that don't have jokes in them. This isn't laid out as <laughs> a comedy per se, but but this is like it's supposed to have moments of levity, and they are all not fun. Yeah. There's one scene where she goes and gets James Belushi laid, and it's just the most fucking awkward thing. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I don't understand what it's about. Um, yeah, just really. And it's Karen Black's only appearance in the film oh too. God, yeah, that's yeah. right. I was yeah, kind of excited like when I saw her in the credits. Too. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a movie full of people where you're like, what what the fuck are you doing here? So we mentioned John Waters cameo in the first five minutes. Uh, this was Anne Ramsey's last film before she died. That's pretty you know fucked how old up. Anne Ramsey was when she died. She looks like she's about 107, but she's probably like 36. <laughs> well, yeah, she was 59. She was not even 60. Jesus. <laughs> God. Such a film well, full I of mean, sadness. It really is. There's um Tom Tiny List. Yeah, you got t- yeah. Tom what what is his name? Tom Tiny Lister, favorite heavy shows mm-hmm. up like Oh yeah, Zeus. Tracy Walter. Just yeah, all kinds of people showing up in this. Uh, two Vincent twins who own that. There's also an appearance by these this set of twins who I remember being in an episode of Kitchen Nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Happier times. I'm actually very serious about that. No, okay. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I when I saw those twins, I actually paused the movie. It's it's when they're in the the pizza place or something. I think right or no no no. Yeah, it's, that uh, first. it's a diner before that. Uh, no, I it's think. the gas station. Gas the gas st- station. Yeah. yeah, it's a gas station slash diner that Ann Ramsey owns. But they're sitting there, <laughs> and I'm like, who the fuck are those guys? So then I paused the movie and I looked on IMDb and I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, I know I have fucking seen them somewhere, and the answer is. Kitchen Nightmares because I've seen like every episode of that show probably three <laughs> times so that that makes perfect sense now thank you yeah, and the episode like one of them is crying and the other one chastises him for crying because of the failing business <laughs> it's good it's nice so, so you're saying they started out in like a food court scene in the movies and they went on to open their own failed restaurant <laughs> that was the inspiration yeah why not Wow, Homer and Eddie inspiring failures <laughs> for years to come. <laughs> Did you so, guys like the um, the scene where they go to the brothel? Oh yeah, that was oh, that was yes. really good for me. That felt good. 
it was it was good too because it's like, well, how do we get from point A to point B? And the answer well, is a little. I, I, there's a little something in there for the fellas. I noticed that Andre threw in. You know, yeah, yeah. A little something for the boys. A little something for the boys. But yeah, I mean, I mean, when when our first glimpse of who is uh, Whoopi Goldberg's character. And the first thing we get from her is she's mean and homophobic. <laughs> it makes perfect sense that she would force cognitively disabled Jim Belushi to go to a brothel where her cousin works because she really wants him to fuck her cousin. Right? It's a giving thing, you know? I mean, it's a, there's a religious theme throughout. and I mean, kind of sets in motion her entire transformation towards the end, uh, which is that yeah. she dies. Sorry, spoiler alert. Whoopi yeah. Goldberg dies. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't I know. It, the whole thing struck me as weird. I just, I mean, now, guys, fellas, come on, boys. I know. I, I would I would give you any one of my family members, but I usually start as second cousins. <laughs> I just, it seems too, a little too close. A little too close. I support our local industry. It's really important. So there's there's that. We what, should mention that the whole what point. Year, hmm? What year was Homer and Eddie? 89. Okay. So this is after burglar. Post burglar. Yeah. Post burglar. That's <laughs> important post burglar period. Maybe. Yeah, no we we should mention like so the whole point of this film is that Jim Belushi is traveling he has to make it to Oregon to see his dying father and I, I don't like I don't get the geography of it either. They just they kind of drive in a beat up old car. But Whoopi Goldberg tries to steal a couple of cars. They go from, like, desert to, like, just snow somewhere. And then they end up in, like, somewhere that just kind of looks like spring. I, I wasn't really paying a huge amount of attention to this point. I just didn't quite get the geography of the whole thing. I don't know what route they took. Um, the whole f- Well, there's that whole fun scene in Oakland. Oh, well. <laughs> Where we meet the mother in a cemetery. Sorry, a oh, fun yeah, scene, you say. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> the finest I, scene in the entire yeah. film. I'd say. How how did the mother not get best supporting for that? Because I mean, it's it's um, uh, this. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> you get you get great lines like that. Uh, this this beautiful moment. Now this is guys. It, I, I'm a big crier, so if I start sobbing, just you know, give me a second. Can I it's okay. A little while longer. We had a nice talk already. What what okay, I, so how how do we even get to the cemetery? Someone explain to me how we end up in the cemetery with Whoopi Goldberg's character's Bob. How, how do we get here? Well, I thought the implication was when she finds out where her mother is and they say, Oh, check out the cemetery, it means that she's dead so she's gonna go visit the grave in fact for the first few moments i thought that she was having an hallucination she was speaking to her mom's ghost well, that would make more sense uh but what the other it thing it wasn't is, until she started shouting homer that i realized oh this was an actual conversation yeah it's real shit and then she's like waiting in the cemetery to die um so uh, that's it's a, that's repeated, a choice. It's and a repeated theme of the film. I mean, it's kind of, you know, that mental illness, be it, uh, you know, abnormal behavior or developmental disability, is just kind of quirky and endearing, up to and including murdering gas station attendants. But it also <laughs> runs in the family. Oh, that's, uh, yeah. oh, the sins of the father or mother. For... <laughs> 
We think I think we've yeah. uncovered something here. It also um, sets in motion a theme. I think we're I suspect we're going to be returning to throughout the entire Whoopathon, which is they don't even try and make Whoopi Goldberg uh, feminine or romantic in any way. There's just absolutely no, no threat of any kind of a <laughs> sexual element attached to her. Which in this film, okay, maybe not so much. Um, but then throughout subsequent films, it's kind of like it, it starts feeling like they're just really working to just not go there. She's one yeah, of the guys. Whoopi Goldberg is, yeah, she's she's like this sexless husk of a of a person. <laughs> we're supposed to there's, there's not she's denied all of this. And then in addition to that, we're supposed to believe that she's funny. She's a comedian. And there's no jokes for her. So she's just this, like, this empty vessel floating through shitty films. I mean, I will say that here's here's what you want Homer and Eddie for, okay? If you have ever wanted to see Whoopi Goldberg smash her face into a mirror like Agent whatever in Twin Peaks at the end of, of season oh, Dale two, Cooper, yeah. Dale Cooper, that th- this is the film for it. There, there's a powerful moment where she's wrestling with her inner demons and just smashes her face into a mirror and... Jim Belushi gives an amazing performance, kind of asking her to stop a bit. Um, yeah, it just the whole film is I, I don't understand. Like this, it, uh, as, as mean as it sounds, watching the film kind of felt like dying a little bit, like just, just slipping away. Like you have no control or grasp of what's happening. You don't know who it's for. It's not. It, it seems not located on this earth. Or in this plane of interest, like this film doesn't seem like it was made for anyone in particular. And it just sort of just drifts on along until it ends. And you kind of wonder, how did that happen? Like, was this in cinemas? Could you go to a cinema and watch Homer and Eddie? Because that seems unbelievable (laughs) to me. Oh, I I, I can picture it being like part of a double bill in a drive-in. With Paris, Texas. (laughs) Yeah. I can yeah. echo a lot of those comments you made, Jack, because I felt dirty and haunted <laughs> after this. And I had to watch this over the course of three nights. I couldn't finish it in one sitting. I had to stop every 45 minutes and just turn it off and do something else. Take a shower. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think something with it being in standard def on uh, Tubi as well kind of played into that. It just felt old and I wasn't supposed to be watching this. Like, this is some sort of, like, pirated thing somebody sent me. And it just, it felt, it had a major ick factor. It's like the, throughout. the guinea pig experiments, the Whoopi Goldberg episode. <laughs> I was I was thinking it was it was modeled after the uh, the Max Headroom incident in Chicago, where it, that, that's what it looked like on Tubi. It was just like this distorted, weird, grotesque thing that makes you feel bad and strange. And it's extra weird in in like letterboxed because it's like all these you know American vistas. I mean, it's kind of like as a road movie, they've they've got some nice sequences. They they travel around, uh, you know, they they go a few places, and it's all just boxed in in their little shitty car, um, and you know, looks like crap. But at the same time, I cannot imagine anyone dedicating resources. Whoopi Goldberg wouldn't pay money to restore this. <laughs> She's probably. Uh, let me tell you. Let me tell you who this movie's for. Okay. Um. So what I'm going to do? Susan's doing a rewatch of Twin Peaks right now, and I'm thinking about just taking the last episode of the second season and swapping it out with Homer and Eddie and seeing if she notices. So that's that's my current plan. Just going to rename the file, drop it in there, see what happens. But uh, but imagine like so I don't know who actually went to see this, but critics did obviously, and uh, mm-hmm. you 
I don't know how big Whoopi is, but like at this point, but they had already seen Burglar, and then you see this, uh, yeah. which is a real shot to the gut for anybody that was caring about like what Whoopi was going to be uh, in in <laughs> well, movies. Listen, I mean, as, as a what? former Quaalude user, um, sh- <laughs> <laughs> so so speaking of that sexless aspect, this is actually one of two films we'll be covering today where she she well, plays uh, somebody named Eddie. Was, they recast. Well, yes, she plays a character named Eddie, but I was I was going to see where they recast a uh, a male actor with her at the last minute. This was initially supposed to be a Richard Pryor playing opposite of uh, Jim Belushi. <laughs> Which and what the fuck was he doing in 1989? Jesus I Christ! I mean, I mean let's let's be Dying? honest. I, I Richard Pryor would have been better. First, I mean, Pryor could do. I mean, I'm thinking like blue collar. Like Richard Pryor would have been better than Whoopi Goldberg. Could you imagine Whoopi Goldberg yeah. in Blue Collar? Like, that wouldn't work at all. <laughs> no. I think yeah, Paul Schrader would have thrown her into a cement mixer. It's a- <laughs> Well, the, the thing here is that you'll see, like, some rewrites in Burglar, obviously. But uh, in this, I feel like they didn't change the script, like, at all. Not even an ounce. They, they literally refer to her character as male, like, uh, multiple times throughout the, the movie. It's just like... You boys need to get out of trouble here. It's like, uh, okay, I don't, I don't know. I feel like they just put zero effort into there's, there's making like a point, the work for Whoopi. There's a point of like of of institutionalized racism that like lapses into actual colorblind, almost progressivism. Like it's just like, yeah, we just swap people out. We don't see color or gender. It's like maybe you should a little bit for the purposes of this film, <laughs> please. Just for continuity's sake, at least. <laughs> <laughs> but even then oh, still like this film makes no sense like I really because I mean we're, we're coming at it from a Whoopi Goldberg perspective but I feel like this really is I think Belushi gets first billing too do they have joint billing or I think Belushi comes first if I I might be wrong about that but I feel like this is a Belushi vehicle this is absolutely like Adam said this is his like or like Coleman said this is like his this is his Oscar moment and that did not materialize um, at all because no. he's James fucking Belushi and well, uh, I'll say you ne- you never go full Homer. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I'm sorry, you never. No, no, you never go full. Homer! <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, oh, this is a film f- about nothing. And for so, I mean, it's worth noting. Okay, that that um, towards the end, there's like this quasi-religious aspect to it. That that uh, Eddie finally basically meets her comeuppance because she keeps holding up gas stations and liquor stores and whatnot and uh, she gets shot and then she has a vision of Jesus and she understands some kind of spiritual forgiveness or something or some burden is lifted she's she's also did, did we mention that she's like uh she's mortally ill she's gonna die from brain cancer in like a week that's like an important part of her character though you wouldn't know it watching the film because nothing seems to have any value but um, but are we meant to be guessing if she's making that up? Are uh, why would you bother? I, I guess that's. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, there's well, no I, curiosity. I was going to assume that 
that if they wanted the character to die at the end, they had already set up this whole, you know, brain cancer thing. <laughs> so it seemed a lot of left field to that uh, just beautiful setup. But I mean, I mean, the the kind of the, the quaint kind of petty moralism of Hollywood requires that if a character murders someone, they have to be murdered. You know, she can't just die of brain cancer. You know, a day later, that's like getting off the hook somehow. So she has to, she she has to, you know, pay in blood. Uh, and and Homer holds her and comforts her as she slips away. And there's just a a guy I don't even remember at this point. There's a guy dressed as Jesus carrying a, a cross around. He's wearing goggles, but like I don't know if he's just bringing the cross home after a day of festivities or what, well, I think what the they, story is. The neighbors who witnessed the shooting say like, "Oh, he's just this crazy guy that, who walks around with a cross dressed as Jesus." Right, and and that like, seems like you the know town idiot. Yeah, and that sounds seems like you know a comment on like America that there's like some kind of strange perverse kind of sanctity to to the whole thing. You know that there's a man dressed as Jesus that appears there and plays some kind of role of value in a woman's uh, kind of salvation. Uh, you know, I feel like it's it's trying to lean into that, but uh, you know how seriously you could ever take any of this is really wow. like there's not an actor alive who could sell this you could put christ you should put robert de niro and judy dench into this film and it would absolutely still <laughs> sink like a stone i'd watch that well uh I, I i we got four of these bad boys to get through yeah and, that's true uh, which is why sean sean before before we move on to the last one the thing that I want to leave you guys with here is I was doing research on Homer and Eddie, and there's not a lot out there because not a lot of people have seen this film. And one of the things I came across is actually an excerpt from uh, uh, David Cross's book where he has a chapter devoted to people that he thinks are assholes in Hollywood, essentially. And he's got a story about how Jim Belushi is just a giant dickhead. But before he goes into that, there's this little aside here. Um, he says... <laughs> Um, if you think my opinion of Jim Belushi's work is undeserved, please get your hands on a copy of Homer and Eddie co-starring Whoopi Goldberg. It's one of the worst movies ever made. And Jim Belushi's performance is pure, unintentional comedy gold. Trust me, it's worth the hunt. Uh, need a little teaser? Jim comically yet poignantly plays a grown man who's brain damaged and on his own. Uh, and then he says, uh... Even though his character was born and raised in a tiny rural town in Arizona that he's never left, he speaks in a thick Chicago accent. That, that must be one of those weird brain rewiring things that neurologist Oliver Sacks is always yammering on about. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not wrong. And he was injured playing baseball, America's pastime. Again, you know, there's a lot there if you want to go digging, if, if that seems worth it. But like we've already covered, it took like some of us three days to just to get through this. Uh, I don't uh, know if there was really any comedy gold. No, even unintentional. Like, I mean, how funny are CTEs? That's kind of your, <laughs> that's your jumping off point. Well, and again, Steve, no I jokes. was real disappointed you didn't uh, you didn't clip that uh, portion where Whoopi's character explains the uh, genesis of the name Homer. That's that's a joke that really fucking lands that's, in the that's year twenty. That's a good one. <laughs> We're we're trying to build an audience, not lose people. <laughs> Although it, it it is in the trailer, that was that was a real humdinger of a line. But uh, you know, if, if you're into gay slurs, uh, watch the trailer for Homer and Eddie. It's on YouTube, and you will be horrified. It's right up front. Right up front. You don't have to get in too deep with that one. You just turn it off. That's pretty much all you need to know about this movie. Um, but as Sean mentioned, we do have quite a few of these to get through. Yes. <laughs> Jesus. Well, Christ. fortunately, they're all less interesting than Homer and Eddie, so they'll go a little quicker. 
Yeah, is, uh, I, I guess sure. let, let's let's get into one of the least interesting things that we watch. But to its credit, it looks like a movie. Um, <laughs> we also watched an early Whoopi Goldberg comedy foray. This is right after she uh, received critical acclaim for The Color Purple. And, you know, a- after you get all this uh, award season love and-, and you're in this humongous movie that has stood the test of time and is beloved by millions... <laughs> What do you do with your career? And the answer is you jump into a unfunny action comedy vehicle that was originally meant for Bruce Willis, but he was too busy recording a Bruno the Kid album or some shit. So we got Whoopi Goldberg instead. So Burglar, guys, what'd you think? <laughs> um, kind of a hot take on Burglar. <laughs> this is a movie. I didn't. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I did not dislike it. And maybe that's because I was still hung over from Homer and Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> and I had also, during this quarantine, binge-watched all the Police Academy movies. Oh, and, man. Uh, Police Academy, of course, created by Hugh Wilson, who is also the director of Burglar. Uh, and Hugh Wilson also created WKRP in Cincinnati. And he has a cameo in Burglar, and it's one of these scenes that's one of the most egotistical scenes I've ever seen from a director. Uh, He plays this guy at a bar who says, I'll have one more. And then they turn on the TV to watch an episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. So the director appears on screen to watch his own television show in his own film. That's beautiful. That's a better gag than anything else in this. (laughs) Like, I mean, my summation of Burglar is that like literally it is a movie shaped void. Like there's mm-hmm. there's nothing of note in this film, and it, it's it's interesting to because Bruce Willis was originally going to play it, and you can imagine the film with Bruce Willis that it would be because it, it it's not it's not really a comedy at all, it's a mystery thriller a little bit, um, and they tried to retrofit with Bobcat, yeah, with Bob, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's like you could see there's a mystery thriller, there's a woman who's at the center of the mystery that you imagine there will be some kind of sexual charge between her and Bruce Willis. All that's gone. Instead, what they did was they removed all the sexual charges possible, threw in Bobcat Goldthwait as comedy foil. Like, Bobcat Goldthwait is the funny one in this film, not Whoopi Goldberg. Um, it also feels like it was retrofitted, I think, to be... This was released the same year as Beverly Hills Cop 2. There's certain moments in this where I feel like they just kind of, like, told Whoopi Goldberg to, you know, be more like Eddie Murphy. Like, in the opening scene, she's a terrible burglar, for one. She just goes into place and just hangs out there until the people come home and then she has to like put on a character and gesticulate and talk really quickly and then escape somehow in the rabble but it's not really funny it's not a joke it's just a lot of noise but you know you could imagine Axel Foley does similar things but there's actual jokes to it um sure even the even the score of the film I thought was very like faux Harold Faltermeyer it is like the, it had the that music kind of Beverly this, Hills Cop music. Yeah, the music felt more curated than the film, frankly. There's like a lot of like kind of boppy pop tunes in this that are seem more notable than what's happening on screen. And the, the film, I mean, it's not it's not a bad film in terms like it's clearly made with high production values. It's shot on location in several cases in San Francisco. Um, has a budget yeah yeah like like it's got a lot going for it It looks like a movie which is more than i could say for some of the other films we're going to discuss like it has like cinematography and lighting and depth of field and things like that but it's just feels utterly lifeless the the progression of events and, and there's a mystery at the center of it and the progression of the mystery is just like i could not 
care where we were going with this. Looking and, looking at uh, um, uh, some of the reviews, a lot of them noticed some of these things. Like, there isn't a lot of talk about <clears throat> Bruce Willis, but the, the sexlessness and, and whatnot. But uh, I want to get to a good one uh, here uh, from Roger Ebert in a second. But uh, again, I will turn to the Washington Post for a couple of zingers. Uh, opening line, consider this a burglar alarm. Whatever you pay for this dreadful little film, you've been robbed. Uh, and then it ends <laughs> with, um, burglar is obviously less a film than a star vehicle. A few more like this, though. And Goldberg may have to change her name to whoops. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> so... There's a joke. I, I think, um... <laughs> Ebert's review is really interesting uh, for our project. Um, he gave it one one out of four stars, but um, it's it's not exactly a standard review that uh, you know he does. He isn't picking apart different parts of the movie. It's um, it's not very long, but the entire thing is just like a screed about Hollywood wasting Whoopi Goldberg. Um, it's just like talking about how she's like this talent and, uh, <clears throat> like, um, here's how it ends after like just paragraphs of, of talking about, uh, they're going to waste this, whatever. Here's what is happening. Goldberg's career is being destroyed. She came out of nowhere. She had some su success on the stage. She was brilliant in the color purple. And now with one cynical deal after another, she is being shoehorned into formula movies that don't even have a chance of being good. Soon she will be unbankable, and that will be that. The system will have chewed up and spit out another talent who suffers from the terrible quality of being unique. I think he's being a little generous here, um, because she also doesn't have a lot... Uh, she, she isn't doing much in this movie. Obviously, she isn't dealt very much, but like she's not a interesting presence in this or Homer and Eddie. I mean, um, I mean... But it's... it's well, it's, it's, a, it's just interesting watching the, or reading these before uh, knowing that this came before Homer and Eddie, like I said, just being like people being like, oh, this is going to be bad for her career. And then, um, yeah, well, especially yeah. because, I mean, Ebert even calls it out in his review. He says, uh, quote, it is criminal to put her into this brain damaged assembly line thriller. And uh, I, if anything, it's prophetic because Homer and Eddie came out after this. So, um <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 weird that that's that's the main line here. Uh, I it's it's just so hard to wrestle with this because again, there's there's no real comedy, and this is Hugh Wilson allegedly at his peak. I mean, this is before he went all in on uh, oh, uh, what's his face, uh, blast from the past, and and Dudley Do Right, um, Brendan Fraser, <laughs> who was his muse in the late nineties. I think it, I think it's it's telling, and because I mean, prior to prior to starting this, I have no strong opinion about Whoopi Goldberg. I saw a couple of her movies growing up, but I it's kind of she's not really on my radar at all. Better or worse, I'm kind of neutral. But four films in from this podcast, I don't know what her talents are because none of these films really showcase anything. Nominally comedy, certainly, but it's not there. There aren't the jokes. She's just. She's just a person who's in films, to and, and that I'm seems sorry. to be her it. Her talent, her talent, Jack. Her talent is clearly defending Bill Cosby on The View. That's that's what she does best. <laughs> and Harvey so think, Weinstein, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I, I might be able to talk about some of her talent uh, in a later uh, discussion. But um, 
Uh, not necessarily here, but I also wanted to note that um, I think we'll be talking about a movie called Fatal Beauty that she was in. That um, uh, if we're talking about the, sort of the timeline, that came out uh, like seven months after um, Burglar, uh, which will be interesting to talk about or like see those reviews and, and whatnot when when we visit that. I mean, I can't speak to its quality, but. Uh, I, I'm not hopeful, but it, it, it's worth noting that this was a seemingly a larger Hollywood project of just throwing her in uh, these genre pictures that were just yeah void of yeah. feeling. Yeah, it, it's yeah. fascinating to me like that this was the narrative at the time. We've got to protect Whoopi Goldberg or something like. What, <laughs> what are we talking because about? Of like, the if you look at her the color filmography, purple. it's like ninety-five percent. This movie, they're all just right. lifeless, fucking very mediocre uh, failures in large part. So it's like, what what are it's we preserving this person Spielberg. for? Where, where is that role? Yeah, no clue. I, I think it's, I, I it's an industry. Concerned. Oh, go ahead, Jack. I'm just saying, I think it's an industry to kind of, it's difficult to draw a line between where does the, for particularly for people of color in, in cinema, drawing the line between where have they screwed up their careers individually versus where is the industry kneecapped them? And I think with Whoopi Goldberg, people genuinely don't know, and I genuinely don't know, because certainly it looks like she got just bad projects. Um, I don't know if she pushed for them herself or not. So I just feel like maybe it's like people are just giving the benefit of the doubt here that, you know, she could, she had bills to pay. She had some momentum, but this is the best she could get was Bruce Willis's cast offs, Richard Pryor's cast offs, um, saying, playing second fiddle to John Belushi or James Belushi, um, you know, which, which is pretty damning of the industry, frankly. But yeah, I don't know. I'm just curious to see as we progress if we find anything where she's actually good. I don't know. I need. To, I should watch yeah. the color purple. I guess. Um, yeah, maybe I that's mean, it. Yeah, you're 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 not wrong. That's for sure. There's certainly a, a greater industry conversation to be had about it. But I don't know if she's the best example because again, we we are focusing on a a great number of films where she's she's the lead, and almost none of them were financial successes, and yet she had a lot of chances in Hollywood. They, they continued to really push her as a central vehicle or a central actress in, in many vehicles. It, it, I don't know why. I, I, and sure. A lot of them were kind of also rams. Uh, she was maybe never. It is mysterious. That ideal vehicle maybe until like sister act where, where she broke out and made just mountains of money. But, uh, I don't know. They, they never stopped trying. You'll, you you got to give the industry credit on that front, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely like this weird twilight zone between kind of color purple to ghost to sister act. And like the spaces in between those. And I mean, in ghost, she's really, she's, I haven't seen the film in years, but I think she's playing, you know, what we might, refer to as kind of the magical negro character she's kind of playing second fiddle to the main characters and just offering advice um you know she's kind of like a solid state character there while everyone else is actually doing everything so far as i can recall it's been years since i saw that film um so i and i think that's a little bit telling you know she's not the star of ghost by any means or certainly not what drew people into the cinema but yeah that that appeared from like the color purple to ghost that whatever six year period approximately 
you're right. I mean, I I don't know how she kept showing up in things because it doesn't seem like any of them were popular. Mm -hmm. So uh, the last thing that I want to say about this is I I want you to think about Bobcat for a moment. Uh, God bless the man. How old was Bobcat when this movie was made? Because he looks like he's in his mid-50s. He's 25 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Up and coming, young talent. How, God, Bobcat, take care of yourself. I just, say, say what you want. He looks much better now. It's true. Yeah, just, I, well, as, up, as a former Quaalude user. <laughs> say, look, I Although I Bobcat ranked, gave me the only laugh. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I ranked, Steve, I ranked the comedy performances of this film. Um, number one funniest performance in this film is the dog's reaction to chicken being dropped from a vent. That was really like that was really <laughs> comedy cold. That dog really liked the chicken. Number two is Bobcat Goldway getting mad at a bartender. That's that was my next thing. I smiled a little at that, that was, scene. I thought that was pretty great, actually. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that, I, I think smiled was, too. That was great. That was pretty good. Number three is John Goodman sounding like John Goodman, which I put in parentheses reminds me of comedies. So that was um that was a really good joke. And then I just have down like eleven or so question mark. Whoopi Goldberg? And uh, that really sums <laughs> it up. And I and I really don't mean uh, that I, as an offense to Whoopi Goldberg. It's just her character in this isn't funny. She's not she doesn't have jokes. No. She does nothing. So yeah, I d I don't know what, what else you could put to the, the film than that, other than Whoopi Goldberg was hired to not be funny, even though she's ostensibly a comedian. Yeah, I, I laughed three being, times in this um, movie. <laughs> Go ahead, Coleman. Well, well, we talked about her being sort of this sexless object in the film, but I think we're forgetting about the hygienist that tries to rub his junk on her hand. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. There's also that part where she's in the closet and stares at that guy's hog and goes, oh, big hog. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually such a terrible burglar. She just goes was, into the guy's thing and just that like. Was the, uh, oh. Go that was ahead. the blue velvet riff. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah you mentioned that was Blue Velvet. I was like, it could be, I guess, but it doesn't It doesn't do anything with it. She's just stuck in a closet watching two people having sex. But this this is after she, again, is a terrible burglar and goes into a place and just loudly talks to herself while rummaging through their stuff and just wandering around until they inevitably come home. Uh, and then the central mm-hmm. murder of this, I mean, are we even taking this seriously as a murder mystery? The the central hook of this is that a guy is murdered with an insanely specific dental tool and uh, one of the people is a dentist. So the police are like, it must be the dentist who did this murder with an insanely specific tool that no one would bring home. Um, and then it turns out it wasn't. So that's and that's like there's clues that bring them to this this position and again, like I said earlier, like the, the mystery portion of this film is is surprisingly convoluted, like surprisingly heavily built. And yet at each step, it's kind of like there's one glaring clue that they pick up that moves them to the next scene. Like there's no, you know, there's, there, there doesn't feel like there's any real investigation. It feels very rote. It feels like kind of a daytime, like Murder, She Wrote episode where, Dude, you know, someone blurts Jack. something out and reveals something. It's, it's all about... It's all about the. It's all about continuity here, from from burglar to Homer and Eddie, and that's that's homophobia. It's like, why did this yeah. guy murder a bunch of people? And the answer is because he was doing gay stuff, and so he has to murder now. That that makes perfect sense. That's man, that's the eighties in a nutshell. 
Yeah. Well, and and I will say, so I I, I, la- I laughed three times in this movie before we dismiss it completely as a comedy. Um, I laughed at the at the the bartender thing with Bobcat Goldthwait. I laughed at the dog with the chicken, and I laughed at the end when uh, <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg says. Okay, Bobcat, keep an eye on this criminal. We're just going to walk away because we have to figure out a way to end this movie. And Bobcat goes, okay. And then all of a sudden you hear this bang, 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 and he's just bashing the guy over the head of the trash can. You told me to hit him if he moves. <laughs> That's it. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, fuck this. Uh, let's jump ahead to the year 1996. Uh, Braveheart won Best oh, Picture. Yeah. And Braveheart is some dog shit. Uh, Sean, why didn't Eddie win Best, best Picture? The reprisal of the Eddie role, uh, also known as as Eddie without. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think there's probably some racism involved. I haven't looked into it yet, but that's my guess. Uh, there has to be some reason because the pro Scots contingent got got their say. <laughs> Uh, or the I, I, actually, the the real answer is probably because uh, people miss Homer. Yeah. Really um, I will say, <laughs> thanks. Uh, I'm not going to stop hitting that button, by the way. <laughs> um, but I uh, I saw Eddie in the cinema uh, in 1996, um, and I've probably seen Eddie four or five times now after watching it today, this week. Um, God, it's a good movie. Whoopi Do you Goldberg have a GoFundMe, is... Sean? This just sounds no. like you're building up. Like, I've, I've seen Eddie four or five times. Please give me a reason. <laughs> okay. like, this is like, donate like a sad picture of Sean in his apartment. Sarah McLaughlin or whatever playing. Dude, I, this movie completely kicks ass. First of all, Malik Seeley is yeah. amazing. R.I.P. Gone Too Soon. Uh, second, it's got Greg Ostertag in a supporting role, a.k.a. the other white guy from the Utah <laughs> Jazz in the 90s. So all you fucking haters can shut up. Eddie is incredible. It's got at least 37 screenwriters in my estimation. Uh, nothing makes sense. It's it's a perfect movie. The, it's absolutely perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that the um, the main conflict or, or the, 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 the second into third act um crux is the owner of the knicks potentially selling the knicks which to like what what is it texas or something to st louis Uh, Louis. texas would make more sense st louis (laughs) it's really funny (laughs) and after owning the team for approximately four months franklin jell yeah playing a texan he is so (laughs) bad in this film like i i don't know what debt he owed well he may yeah, he may have been distracted because him and Whoopi started dating during this movie, and they had a relationship for five years following that. That is more interesting than anything in this film, and I did not know that. Okay, <laughs> I'm certainly not on that that track. I I would like I have a lot of nostalgia in this movie, but revisiting it, um, it's certainly not like a great movie. But I think after watching uh, Homer and Eddie and Burglar, like. There's so much more chemistry in this movie, and even though it is, yes, a uh, major league um, uh, graft onto basketball, uh, it there's there's a movie here. Um, I mean, certainly, it's ostensibly and, a comedy. Like it is a comedy, visibly. 
But I mean, uh, I, I I was saying that uh, Robert Ory and uh, or not Robert Ory, Rick Fox <laughs> and uh, John Sally uh, just are so much better actors than Belushi. Uh, obviously, they don't have to play somebody with brain damage or whatever. But um, there's there's real chemistry here, and there's like yeah. she she has connections with these actors. Um, that we hadn't seen in those other two movies. Um, now, yeah, Eddie not, walks I, so I Uncut it. Gems could run. All the basketball players in this oh, are yeah. amazing. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I think I think there is that. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm not in on this film. I don't like this film. I thought it's really quite bad. I have, but I also I admit I have no nostalgia or any vested interest in it. I'm also not even a basketball fan. So uh, the Save entire your nasty comments because <laughs> I <you> don't care. <laughs> the entirety of I'm my sorry, basketball. What was that, Jack? I, I can't. The entirety of my basketball knowledge comes from like NBA '97. Because I had like a demo, so I can name like several players <laughs> from that era of basketball, and that's about it. So I, I'm not in on that level. Um, but what I will say about this film, though, I mean, it certainly it's more animated, it's more structured, it it works better as a film than any of the other ones we're going to discuss. But one thing that did strike me about this film, as a major knock against it, is it looks like a TV production. It looks just every single scene is flat and just kind of evenly lit and it just it just looks so boring at all points that there's I, something about there's something about movies like uh, especially movies that are that take place in the garden that like the it always looks the same way it always looks off like i mean space jam uh train wreck whenever they go in there there's something about it that always I looks mean, off. certainly l- lighting that kind of a space is going to be di- i mean there's huge lighting rigs there to specifically remove all of the attributes we might associate with cinema all the desirable yeah. attributes but i mean it's a film they could still make it look like a film i mean granted the yeah, sports yeah, yeah. sections they they could do something with it. maybe you know the sports sections you know that they, they you know if they're filming with live crowds as they do in a few places um you know maybe you know, maybe it's unavoidable, but yeah, every scene in this looked like it looks like sitcom levels, and it's just so mm. unendearing mm-hmm. to the film. And you know, kind of, Jack, kind of just a let me stop you right there. Sure, please. let me stop you because this is this is from director Steve Rash, who you may remember from the Oscar award winning Buddy Holly story. Um, but more importantly, he has a, a long and storied cinematic career. Uh, he made a little movie called Son in Law. So shut the fuck up. Uh, he also I, I made direct-to-video sequels. <laughs> he made direct-to-video sequels to American Pie. He made American Pie Presents Bandcamp, everyone's favorite American Pie sequel. He made uh, Bring It On All or Nothing, a direct-to-video sequel to Bring It On. He made Bring It On In It to Win It, a direct-to-video sequel to Bring It On. He made uh, Road Trip Beer Pong, a direct-to-video sequel to Road Trip. And he also Man's made a little animal. movie in 2012 called Crooked Arrows. You know what that's a sequel to, a direct-to-video sequel to? You want to guess what Crooked Arrows is a direct-to-video sequel to, Jack? Uh, Broken Arrow. Yeah, I was No, it's Broken not. Arrow it's uh, it's it's actually an ori- it's an original film. It's about a Native American lacrosse tra- team. You fucking racist. <laughs> oh my god uh, i will say i watched I, if if coleman recently revisited the police academy series i actually recently revisited son-in-law and um it doesn't hold up just in case anyone's confused uh, about that very bad film uh, damn i was hoping it was 
hold up. Yeah, no, it's it's weirdly Pauly Shore is uh, what what's weird about the film when you watch it actually it's that just everyone's just a dick to Pauly Shore who's just kind of actually not that bad and it's like he's, he's a little annoying and everyone's just a ginormous dickhead to him. It's literally a film about rural people being shitty to not rural people. It's a weird reverse thing, but it's also quite bad. But um that's for another podcast when yeah. we do the Pauly Shore thon. Uh, Uh, when we shore up our Pauly Shore filmographies on Letterboxd Uh, Coleman why is this your favorite movie because it uh, (laughs) it was it was clearly shot in the Charlotte Coliseum by the way not Madison Square Garden there you go I I did not catch that that's a good catch it bothered me throughout the entire film (laughs) And they clearly like covered the purple seats with just cloth to make them look like Madison Square Garden seats. What the fuck? See, these are the I, details I missed. That's that's a shame. That's that's why that's I've, why he's here. I've been in the garden. It's magic, and that was no garden. I um, I, you know, I I joked earlier that it, it kind of felt like it was a movie written by twenty five people, and none of them have ever watched a single game of basketball and i i gotta backtrack a little bit on that because this movie actually it only has uh 10 credited screenwriters so that's that's my mistake uh but uh, it's, can we, can we it's honestly amazing <laughs> yeah can, can we just go adam and i were discussing last night as as we watched the film the economic details of this film which are frankly baffling um, oh, that involve my. yeah that involve a a the manager Dennis Farina who frankly the second he disappeared from the film I was like where's Dennis Farina bring him back please and he's still not really doesn't really do much in the film but he he is left uh, he he's the coach of the Knicks and they want to get rid of him but if they fire him they have they have to pay him one point three million dollars a year for three years so they they have to force him to quit and then they come up with a thing with Eddie to do that and then they bring in Eddie who's a limo driver full time which i mean i don't know how much that pays but i mean it's a full-time job um and they offer her fifty thousand dollars to finish out the season and she just accepts that as a diehard basketball fan who surely has some concept of how much head coaches in the nba are paid um so i mean fifty thousand for you know a couple of months it's surely a pay bump uh, certainly because she'd have to quit her job as a as a limo driver. But I mean, as a limo driver in the 90s, she's probably, you know, before her whole gig economy destroyed everything, she was surely still making 40 grand or so a year, probably. I mean, a rough estimate. She has a nice apartment. Yeah, well, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the New York special. Everyone has a nice apartment in New York movies. The poorer you are, the bigger it gets. It just has less stuff on the walls. Um, strange, <laughs> strange, you know, and the penthouse, like, you know, open plan. But yeah, the, the economics makes no sense. And then he wants to, he owns uh, he owns the team for a couple of months, and then he wants to move them out of New York <laughs> to St. Louis. The largest sports market in the United States. Probably the largest it's, sports market in the world, let's be honest. Come on. Yeah. It, nothing about this film makes any sense. Uh, and, and like I say, Frank Shell is awful in the film. He looks like he is... There's a whole speech he gives about how he... Where he, for some reason, reveals all his diabolical plans to uh, Whoopi Goldberg's character. And he just looks like he couldn't give... It, like He just looks like he wants to get off the screen as soon as possible. Um, and then it ends up in the end with a bunch of uh, multi-millionaire basketball players standing up to the to the coach uh, publicly 
so that he won't sell the team because the team belongs in New York, uh, even though crass commercial capitalism is, you know, kind of understood to be the whole driving force of all of this. Uh, and then it's a happy ending and we're, you know, kind of dumped back in and everything's good. So very confusing film, certainly out of touch with well, and today. <laughs> you also mix, miss the uh, the important part of Dennis Farina's character where he is fired from the Knicks midseason because of the worst team in the NBA. And then he somehow midseason gets a job with another team that is a playoff contender. I, it's... I don't. It doesn't make. We, any we sense. can assume we can assume their coach died, and he probably got uh, run over by Homer. And there you go. Empty. There's a vacation or like a Wait, the spots vacated, and he was able to just jump right in. Easy. Jack, who, who did he get run over by? Who did he get run over by? Homer. <laughs> that's the last. You gotta thing. say it right, man. Come on. That's 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 the last sound he heard before going under the car. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I, I have a I have a few thoughts on Eddie. I, I'm I'm definitely Team Jack here. I think this movie's pretty embarrassingly poorly made. Uh and I I suppose that it, this makes a lot more sense that it was not filmed in New York because there's no Knicks players on the Knicks, even though they use actual NBA players in all the roles. How do you explain those street interviews? Then every time. <laughs> They uh, stop Rudy Giuliani or Donald Trump or the hard hat. Or you Ed know Koch, it's in New Ed York, Koch baby. <laughs> it's very New York. Uh, but yeah, it also suffers, I think, from the fact that it's the same year as Space Jam. So they don't have access to a lot of the big names who were uh, filming that one instead. But yeah, it, this is just such a blatant analog for Major League and illustrates a lot of the problems i guess is that as much as i i personally do like basketball i think the nba is probably my favorite sports league that that baseball is a lot easier to make work in a film because it's it's a much slower sport you can focus on these dramatic moments it's much easier to follow the action in a certain way using the language of cinema and it also is a lot easier to slot actors into the role of a athlete because baseball players aren't giant super athletes so yeah this the script though is is it's like beat for beat major league except structured much more nonsensically it's it introduces like the whole plot of major league in like the last 15 minutes uh where all of a sudden if they make the playoffs they're going to be sold which again economics what the hell does that have to do with anything uh the whole point of Major League was that they wanted to be as bad as possible to justify selling the team, which makes a lot more fucking sense. But yeah, all the players are just analogs for the exact same archetypes that exist in Major League. You have Malik Seeley is probably Roger Dorn, Corbin Burnson's character. You've got uh, Rick Berenger, uh, or Rick Berenger, Tom Berenger's character is very clearly uh, John Sally in this. And on and on down the line, yeah. Uh, Dennis Haysbert is replaced by Dwayne Shinsus's Ivan. I I don't know. It, it's all except they don't bother to flesh out the team with with these fun characters. Instead, they focus on Eddie. So you've got when you when you need to go into the dramatics of the actual basketball, you don't have enough characters to really flesh things out. There's only I think four, maybe five, if you're generous, characters are players on the team who are actually even 
given any dialogue or any characteristics whatsoever. So it, it gets thin real Dude. quick. It's it's also weird that she specifically like the problems she addresses and the team are very like they don't know how to play basketball is one of the problems she addresses. Like the big Russian guy doesn't know how to play defense and she teaches him how to play defense and that turns out to be the key thing that wins them <laughs> something very important very exciting it, it's sort of like there's no Dude. Clar- there's no clarification i mean the, the whole the idea is that the egos are getting she in the learns way. russian overnight she learns russian <laughs> she t- overnight so she can teach ivan to take a charge come on she just got conversational basketball russian 101 you can pick that up easily um, yeah, no, it, there's no, there's no real explanation beyond kind of like the egos. The team is so big that they don't work well together. But there's no explanation why Dennis Farina's character, aside from him also being egotistical, doesn't just address these very obvious things and and impress himself as the coach. He's played like as as a hard ass. He's he fits the role, but for some reason he can't whip the the team into shape, and it requires Eddie's down home knowledge of whatever and a guy getting back to his roots and playing some street ball and like the whole thing is just yeah it's it's bad to me it's very not i I, I think um the uh it's funny how much they play up the basket like professional basketball players as either like lazy and uh i guess just like want money or um uh just want fame uh like none of them actually practice uh except kind of john sally who doesn't even play anymore until he saves the whole season but um uh, yeah it's just funny how much like how they're all stereotype like they're all stereotyped into some sort of like not actually interested in the sport i'm in which uh which which uh, translates into these inaccurate. strangely lethargic basketball scenes too, which I think just speaks probably to the director not being great. Like, there's no invention to the basketball scenes. They're really flat-footed, kind of boring, singular-dimension events. There's no tension in the basketball scenes. Uh, it pretty much falls down to that last, last thing where a guy charges on the big guy and he stands his ground and draws a foul. Um... You know, but like everything prior to that is it feels like they just stuck a camera on the sideline and just kind of picked up some just, you know, random footage of training. And that's it. That's the whole thing. And then just cut, you know, cut in a crowd cheering, probably just move that crowd in, you know, throughout the day. I I don't know. Like none of this was was any of this shot like an actual game. I don't think so, because I guess the players were not playing themselves per se. So they couldn't use actual game footage anywhere down the line. And it just feels like this is a really shoddy recreation of basketball. It it feels like a film, like Steve says, that it was just made by people who have nothing invested in basketball whatsoever. There's no affection for the game in there. Absolutely. Well, you know, Jack, uh, Eddie, not great. (laughs) But I, I had a good time with it, so I just, you know, I save your nasty comments because I don't care. That's, that's really that. Me save and Whoopi are on the same page right now. Uh, we got, we have one more movie though that we need to talk about before we, uh, before we end this thing. And this is actually a a personal request from Stephen Coleman. So we decided to include it in this episode. And this is a, it, it's still a comedy. It is a children's film. But let me, let me kind of set the stage for you a little bit. What if I told you 
that this was a film directed by the man who gave us Fiddler on the Roof. This is, this is from Norman Jewison, all right? And it's from a screenplay from Alvin Sargent, who you may remember from Ordinary People or from comedy, What About Bob? Or if you're into big studio action films, uh, Spider-Man 2. Okay, this is, this, is a, this is a pretty big player, all right? And it stars Oscar-nominated Whoopi Goldberg and Oscar-nominated Gerard Depardieu. So it's got to be great. This is nominated Haley Joe Osmond. Oh, and Haley Joe Osmond. Yeah, this is this is an early role for him. Also an Oscar nom. Also an Oscar nom. Thank you, Coleman. Thank you. So you've got this all star lineup, and uh, the result is a little film called Bogus. Coleman, what the fuck, man? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you mentioned the Whoopi casts coming up here, I have vague memories but also somewhat fond memories of going to see bogus as a sneak preview in the theater and thinking like holy shit and i'm like i don't know 11 years old when this comes out thinking like i get to see this before anybody else does this is going to be amazing my dad took me and i remember spending a lot of time when nancy travis gets t-boned in the film trying to see if my dad was gonna cry (laughs) (laughs) He did not. Oh. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, stop looking at me and just watch the movie. <laughs> and uh, Stop staring at your dad, you weirdo. <laughs> I think I was close to tears when Nancy Travis died, because frankly, you know, she's, you know, pretty easy on the eyes. And the rest of this film, not so easy on any other sense. <laughs> just sort of like a cheese grater run over all of all of my senses for nearly two hours. It's, this is nearly two hours yeah. long, everyone. Bogus is not for the fellas. Uh, my only memory of this movie is I recall seeing the trailer on TV and asking my grandfather to take me to see it, and he outright refused. Just said, <laughs> no, the, I, I can't take you to this. That's where I draw the line. So he just said no. Um, I, I also love, I, I mean, I mentioned all the big stars here. But I, I love Roger, Roger Ebert's review of this movie, which focuses heavily on uh, Gerard Depardieu. And he says, Bogus adds still more wonder to the career of Depardieu, who increasingly seems to be costume in giants, overcoats, and shirts made out of draperies. <laughs> <laughs> this is incredible. What, and, then, what, and then he what, says something. I, I don't have the quote pulled, but he says something about how he, he's, he's got like a broken ogre nose or something. <laughs> What happened in the 90s that they just decided that Gerard Depardieu was like ideal, like kids want, like kids want to look at Gerard Depardieu. Like what meeting occurred that made that a thing? It's fucking terrifying. If you change the score (laughs) of this movie, it becomes a horror film. And speaking of the score too, I thought the entire time, because I mean, it does have all these big names attached to it and it's got a little bit of a budget. So I thought the whole time it was just like Randy Newman soundtrack, but he's kind of phoning it in. No. It, they just hired a bunch of jabronis to pretend to be Randy Newman, which is fucking incredible. <laughs> just an a, a amazing flex. They spent all this money on Gerard Depardieu being a creep, and they did they didn't have the money for Randy, so they're like, yeah, just just fake it. Just kind of do the the weird short people. Guys. Oh, you got a magical Depardieu is a cartoon. You got a big old <laughs> 
That's oh. incredible shit. How is this? Like, this film is so long. And, I, like, what struck me watching it is it's pretty, like, it's pretty well directed. It looks better than Eddie, certainly. It's, it's, it looks like a film. It's better directed than any of the other films in terms of there's, you know, in, I'm not saying it's, like, tremendously inventively directed, but Jewison is clearly just a, a pro. He know, he could do this with his eyes closed. And so there's like these, you know, use of overhead, like uh, crane shots and close-ups and dollies that are quite, you know, emotive and interesting and engaging. And all that's there. And then the film is none of those things to me. Um, because it really, it, it's just, it, it's got that awkward thing which I really dislike as well, which is Whoopi Goldberg plays a, plays a kind of career woman who's doing pretty well and then just has a child foisted on her and it's like this in really important life lesson for a woman oh, is learning to get scratch. on with <laughs> it's like you know you're a woman but you know you're you're definitely unhappy until you learn how to get on with a kid that's been foisted on you um and it's just <laughs> such a shitty kind of a setup through through and through and what this is certainly i think of the films we're talking about today whoopi goldberg comes off best maybe in this maybe eddie i don't know but uh, she certainly had my sympathies most in this film because i think she just really has a kind of a shitty role here uh, as someone who just has to kind of pretend like some just snot-nosed kid that she knows nothing about <laughs> that she knows nothing about <laughs> uh <laughs> No, it's it's absolute <laughs> shit. Uh, Myros, could you try to explain to the audience what this movie's actually about? I, I don't think we've really touched on w what all these people are doing here, because it's uh, not that it's going to make it any more interesting or uh, any more understandable. But what, what the fuck is this movie? Uh, it's about the power of imagination, Steve. Uh, <laughs> maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> I, I, I have <laughs> It's about uh, Haley Joel Osment was raised raised by like a circus, and then his mother dies, so he goes to live with uh, mean old Whoopi Goldberg. And uh, yeah, then, I don't like snap judgments because I've had snap judgments made on me. Yeah, what are you what are you besmirching your character? She runs a restaurant supply business. Okay, she's she's doing her best. Well, what's you know, weird I, to me I thought this was going to be the rare movie where they did give Whoopi Goldberg a uh, romantic subplot. Uh, it, it felt like that was going that direction with the the banker, uh, but it it just didn't. It was like abandoned, left on the cutting room floor because we got to keep Whoop, Whoopi extra sexless. Uh, and <laughs> for, also, for a two-hour I mean, long movie, uh, the the whole banker <laughs> non side plot is you could just you could cut that out completely. I think that doesn't. It's like, what do we get? All we get from that is a is a weird scene where like uh, Haley Joel Osment is like spooning ice cream into the mouth of Gerard Depardieu, his disgusting, like ogreish face. <laughs> uh, what one thing I love about this film early on is that you know Haley Joel Osment, like when he's on the plane flying to meet Whoopi Goldberg, and he's like he's got a coloring book and he's coloring it in, and he's talking, and he's talking to Bogus as making his first appearance. But you know he's ima his imagination. He's talking to the coloring book while, while coloring stuff in, and there's two adults sitting on either side of him, looking at it like this is the most bizarre thing they've ever seen: <laughs> is a child talking to themselves. And the whole film is like, have none of this makes sense? They're like, he's just a kid. Of course, he's doing this. This is totally normal. And they're like, is he deranged? Is he damaged? It's like, no, he's like five. This is just a thing he's gonna do. That's normal. Um, yeah. So, that, uh, oh. 
<laughs> so this this movie was really foreshadowing Gerard Depardieu's uh, future problems on airplanes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it is depressing to me watching this film, seeing Depardieu. Like, I kind of forget how Depardieu was like a physical actor and he moves and he does things and now I think of him now and he just looks like a man who could devote a day to standing up and fail um, and it just makes me feel bad I know Depardieu's kind of Dude. a sh- really shitty person but god he has some great films and this is not one of them this is absolutely should just be blanked from the memory slates could yeah, this I, have the been just scene a dress me up. <laughs> Go ahead, Colin. I was going to say, could this have been just a dress rehearsal for Haley Joe Osment to do Sixth Sense, where he's just learning how to act where he's seeing people who can't be seen? It seems like it. He's got the resume for it, so that was that was probably his agent's big pitch. Careful with spoilers there. Yeah. Yes, but then, but then Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> sees Bogus too. You know, in in a bogus scene where his because he's there's something more going on. He's not just an imaginary friend. Uh, there's something there's something more happening. Uh, I don't really care it's, what it it's might be. It's all an excuse. It's all an excuse for her to have like a weird Fred Astaire dance scene with him. But it, 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 it didn't make insane. sense to me either because uh, like it, it seems like for her character it would make more sense for her to accept the child and accept that he's seeing this Gerard Depardieu imaginary friend because the whole time she's like, Bogus isn't fucking real, you little shit! So if she finally accepts him and accepts that and then he goes away, that's fine. The movie's still fine. It's probably better. But the fact that she has to see him and then do the weird dance scene, it's just, it's completely fucking insane. Yeah. yeah. They, talk about structural problems. That They stack like three of those fucking dream sequences like back to back to back right at the very tail end of the movie. It's like, what the fuck is even happening? It's like they found some extra money. Like, not a lot because the scenes don't look that great. Like, it's like a little cotton candy heaven or something. But yeah, it does, it does feel like they just sort of like, we, we need to do something and just invented some more fantastical scenes. Uh, what's what's struck me in the early stages of this film, because uh, it's sort of weird, is that everyone is, uh, Haley Joel Osment's mom dies, and all of her friends, they all work in the circus together, and they're all really sad, and they're like, you know, he spends all his time with them, and they all know him really, really well, and they're all like, you know, we'd do anything for this kid, and then uh, Nancy Travis's characters will just off responsibility for the kid to her sister, her stepsister, who she apparently has not informed that is is her next of kin to inherit her child if something happens to her, which I feel is something you should probably tell someone. And Whoopi Goldberg is like, no, I don't want the kid. But all these other people who apparently love the kid and spend all their time with the kid and pretty much live with the kid already are like, no, nah, she better take him because, I mean, we, we don't want any of this. It's like there's this weird flip early on where it seems like they're all a support network and they're all like you know we want to keep the kid what do you mean he's being sent somewhere else and then they reach out to Whoopi Goldberg and she's like no I don't want the kid and they're like well she better take it Uh, I didn't quite understand that it seemed like they wanted to keep the kid and then they're like no no she better have it (laughs) Sean on a scale Sean on, on a scale of deflated pool toy to full mast how rock hard are you for the movie Bogus um, uh, <laughs> uh, anyone was, getting an erection during this should go to prison straight <laughs> off hey lock me up 
<laughs> I did not watch Bogus. I actually hit that button on, on accident. You did watch Bogus? <laughs> no. That's bogus. just oh my god! I mean, Sean, come, well, on, I mean, come on, man! Sean, we're, I mean, we're gonna cover it for the like next episode too. I've had snap judgments made on me. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna disagree with Whoopi on this and say you're you're a real piece of shit. This is a this is a great movie. How did you not watch this? I started it and I was like, this looks so fucking laborious. I I, I just couldn't go through with it. I'm sorry. Would you believe Sean that it doesn't get better? <laughs> 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 it's, it's a funny because a lot of movies only, we watch. <laughs> it's funny because it's the only auteur one, like one of the of the bunch. Yeah, I, here's the thing I learned from all these. If I take one lesson away from this entire entire Whoopi Goldberg season, it's that Norman Jewison's still alive. He's ninety three years old. So good for him. That's my takeaway. Seems like a strong possibility That's- you'll outlive Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope he's staying at home. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Fingers yeah. crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> all right, boys. Well, we should probably wrap this thing up. So uh, let's start with our distinguished guest, Stephen Coleman. What are you putting over this week? I'm putting over the Police Academy series. The whole thing. <laughs> you want to see Bobcat Goldthwait at his absolute best? Police Academy 4. That's, I'm, the, I'm uh, that's the filet of the Police Academy series. Does this include Citizens on Patrol? <laughs> That's four. Yep. Oh yeah, that that is four. Yeah, Citizens on Patrol, <laughs> the Michael Winslow theme song. Oh boy! Although Michael Winslow's Abbey Road is definitely his performance as Jimi Hendrix in Police Academy Six in the uh, wow. nightclub. <laughs> God damn it! That's beautiful. Uh, Myros, what are you putting over this week? Uh, I started watching the new Pope, and it's fucking awesome. So you should watch that. It's uh, insane. Um, What's so good about it? Well, I it's I, I probably put over the young Pope previously, but I don't know. I, if you want to watch like some Fellini homage that's super lush and makes fun of the Catholic Church and its uh, various insanities and uh lets John Malkovich go completely berserk, mm. then uh yeah, right. watch this cuz those are all good things and the show is very good. There you go. Sean, what are you putting over this week? Uh I watched the, the driller killer able for ours the driller killer yesterday and uh i have to say uh well it's a it's a movie about a guy a painter in new york who um lives uh in the same building as a uh, a no punk band called the roosters or something like that and uh he ends up being driven insane uh because of that band and also because of financial pressures. But uh, it really helped me tap into uh, what I need to do before I move out of this apartment that I've been living uh, across the hall from from someone who plays the flute uh, at uh, Mm -hmm. all all times of the day. Uh, It just gave me some things to think about, some ideas, um, some sort of action items. Um, Yeah. And it's a good flick. I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of on the same level as, as that movie and same level as you, too, because there's a guy, he lives across the street from me, and he does not play the flute, and he's not in a punk band, but he plays, like, mid-90s techno music at an impossible volume. <laughs> like, this is, a, this is, this is not a, a narrow street. Like, he's, he's pretty far away from me. He's indoors. 
He's playing this music, and I can hear it from like my kitchen in the back of the house. And it's just everything is just like it, it's sandstorm, but not sandstorm. It's just whatever that is. It's shitty fake sandstorm, yeah. and it's from like seven a.m. to seven p.m. every single fucking day. So little known uh, fact: dance not... music is. It, I'm just gonna say a little known fact about dance music. It's it's actually all sandstorm. That's how that works. <laughs> The flute playing is not sense. that bad, I'm sure. That sounds horrible. Because, I mean, one, she's she's good at it, at least. Um, but yeah. it's And I know you're a big, you're a big Aqualung guy, right? You're, you, you're yeah, really and it's the, all, the tall. It's all you're jazz. a tall head. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's all jazz flute. Uh, but, like, new age jazz flute. Uh, no, but uh, it's just kind of shrill. And, and um, I think I just kind of desensitized it for the most part after five years. But there are times where it's like, Friday or Saturday on a she doesn't seem to to know any single person in the universe um but there there is uh times on like a Friday or Saturday night not during quarantine at like 10 30 p.m when she's playing just like full bore and I'm just like this is unreasonable that's right flautist we know you're we know you're listening he's going I mean, for it he's got the drill ready I mean, Steve, look on the bright side here. You, you always know who you can go to when, with those burning Paul Oakenfold questions you've been holding in your heart. That's true. That's true. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be so hard on him. You're right. You're right. Uh, Jack, what are you putting over this week? Okay, I'm, I'm going to put over one thing and then give a warning. So, so speaking of non, I'm going to put over, uh, speaking of non-sandstorm uh, electronic music, Autecra dropped like seven uh, live performances this week i think uh which are pretty good if you just like listen to a weird interesting glitchy electronic music uh if you don't then you'll probably just think your speaker's broken so uh give that a try that's pretty good um my warning is that i watched a bunch of Whoopi goldberg movies recently which is not wise don't recommend that but also to leaven the pace between them i watched glenn danzig's verotica and don't do that. That's an extremely bad idea. So just putting that out there, don't watch Verotica. Um, or if you have to, make sure you're at least like three beers deep before it even starts because you'll need it. Well, I mean, all, all you're telling me right now is I'm going to wait <laughs> about three years. So the movie is sort of just kind of left your mind completely and then i'm going to propose an episode with verotica so you end up having to watch it again so thank you jack oh, uh, this man. week oh. <laughs> i'm putting over <laughs> a little movie called flesh eating mothers and i can't i can't remember if i've put this one over before or not but if i have it's okay it's poetic because it's uh it's a great little comedy horror movie uh, it's it's gory it's goofy it's loads of fun it's an easy watch. It's genuinely funny, unlike most Whoopi Goldberg movies. And uh, the reason why I don't care if I'm putting it over for a second time is because Vinegar Syndrome accidentally sent me two copies of it. So uh, might as well double up, right? That makes sense. Anyways, if you have any uh, comments, questions, death threats, or marriage proposals, you can reach us at Optimism Vaccine on Twitter or email us, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Myros is standing by, refreshing the inbox as we speak. In addition to that, if you want to yell at me in particular for all of the soundboard drops that I discovered, now that I can do that, uh, you can yell at me at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F on Twitter or at Letterboxd, where I have all of my Whoopi Goldberg reviews archived. Uh, Sean, where can people find you? 
Letterbox, Sean Glynis. Jack, how about you? You can find me at Real Jack Eason on Twitter. <laughs> Myros cannot be found there. on the internet. A lot of I, I love the energy, boys. I love it. Uh, you cannot find Adam Myros on the internet, so you're going to have to email us for, for his responses. Uh, Stephen Coleman, can we find you on the internet anywhere? <laughs> uh, Facebook. and uh, <laughs> Are you my grandma? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. I'm getting there. Facebook me, bro. Uh, <laughs> I am on Twitter. I don't really do anything on Twitter anymore, but I am at Colemania, and that's K-O-H-L-M-A-N-I-A. Um, I just kind of lurk on there. I don't really do much. Yep. <laughs> Good to it. know. Good to know, Come buddy. See me at Ray's Thank Green you. Brewing Company, even during the quarantine. <laughs> that sounds safe. All right. Well, you know, Jake's not here, and we usually give him the last word. But uh, since he's not, we're gonna we're gonna. I got a little special special thing for you guys. You ready? That's all we got.